Okay, well, I think you all know where to go. We're going to be back in 1 Peter chapter 3 tonight, and I uh, hope you all had a good afternoon just like what we did. Uh, we ate a lot and drank coffee and enjoyed a beautiful drive, so we really had a, a great afternoon and really enjoyed it. All right, so ladies, the time has come, right? We got to uh, let the men have it this morning, and uh, we'll do a little bit of review of that. But I am looking forward to talking to all of you uh, ladies tonight. And I just, I got to let you know up front that I'm not scared. I'm not scared of the ladies. I was raised with three sisters and no brother. I had two older sisters, a younger sister, no brother. Okay, so I was about uh, 10 years old when my next older sister and I were playing in the backyard. Actually, all three of my sisters were there. I was playing particularly with my next older sister. And... She convinced me to climb into a garbage can that we had in our backyard that held all of our dog food for our dogs. And she said, here's this large trash can. You know, it's, it's full of dog food. There's about this much room. And she kept saying, oh, you can't fit in there. You can't fit in there. Oh, I, I can fit in there. I'll prove it to you. Well, I wouldn't be able to close the lid. Yeah, you can close the lid. Well, I wouldn't be able to lock it. Yeah, you can lock it. And so... She locks the two uh, sides on the uh, trash can, and uh, we lived in Tennessee at the time. She put the trash can over on its side and rolled it down a hill, a Tennessee hill, with me in it. And I had dog food in places I didn't even know I had. My mom came out, and about this age, she just started telling me, son, if you keep letting your sisters talk you into this stuff, you deserve whatever it is that happens to you. <laughs> so it's kind of like I started to see through all those feminine wiles, and it's like, um, I'm not buying that anymore. Uh, but it didn't end there. Obviously, God gave me a wife, who I'm super thankful for. And we have three daughters. Of our seven children, we have three daughters and uh, so God's just seen fit to surround me with, with women my whole life. And I, I'm very thankful for that. Truly, I'm thankful for that. But, um, well, even I, I'd have to mention one more thing. I teach at Heartland, and this semester I'm teaching a class to first-year students, Gospel's Life of Christ. I teach it every semester. But this semester in the class, there are 47 ladies and one male student. So you got to pray for him. But uh, it, it's a delightful time. Truly, I, I'm enjoying getting to teach all of the ladies in that class. So again, Lord has me around ladies a lot. And, and so it's not at all that I'm scared or intimidated. And sometimes I, I'm afraid that preachers can pull their punches when they're talking uh, to ladies. But because I have such a heart for you, I have a heart for my sisters, for my wife, for my daughters, and what's possible for them then I just feel like, just like I, I gave it straight to the men this morning, that I should give it straight to the ladies tonight. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that, okay? So we're going to read our text again, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. We really spent our time this morning in verse 7, but we'll spend tonight in verses 1 through 6. But I'm going to read the whole thing again, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Okay, now if you remember, it says, Likewise, ye wives... So that's pointing back to the example of Jesus, right? Who was the perfect example of one who was submitted to the will of his father, even to the place of his suffering. So just like Jesus was submitted to his authority, then Peter says in verse 1, Likewise, or in the same manner, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Now you remember from this morning, you got to love Peter's language and the way that he speaks to the women, understanding their communication style. It's the beautiful language. There's the examples. There's the specifics that we're going to talk about tonight. And then in verse 7, he says to the men, likewise, so in the same manner, it's not as though that women are the only ones in the marriage relationship that have a responsibility to submit. We talked about it. Men have a responsibility to submit to the, the rule and control of Jesus, and they'll manifest that submission by how they treat their wives. 
So Peter gets right to the point in verse 7 and says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and then together both, both husband and wife as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So let me pray with you, and then we're going to spend our time tonight in verses 1 through 6. Lord, I do thank you just for the great day that you've given us today. I sure enjoyed the time with everyone this morning to be able to look at your word and to consider the responsibility that uh, we as husbands have to treat our wives in a way that is submitted to Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for that reminder, for that high standard and expectation that you've placed upon us. And Lord, I do look forward to speaking to the wives tonight and talking to them about the responsibility that you've entrusted to them as women. And I pray, God, that you'd give clarity and understanding and that, God, you would give the wives the same faith in you and the same grace to be able to apply what your word asks of them tonight as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you remember, we talked about this morning that everything in the marriage relationship works better when it's in order, as God designed it to be. And God's order and God's design for the marriage relationship is presented here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in chapter 3, where that God the Father functions as the head above all, and he is the head of Christ, who is presented in 1 Peter 2, as I said, as an example of one who is in perfect submission to his head, the Heavenly Father. But underneath the rule and control of Jesus, the husband has the responsibility to be in submission to Jesus, and the wife has the responsibility to be in submission to the husband. And as everyone lines up in the place that God's given that wife, that husband to be, then everything in marriage works out beautifully and it runs as God intended it to run in a way that's a blessing to everyone. It doesn't mean that we don't go through difficulties in married life. It doesn't mean that we don't go through trials, but the marriage relationship runs as God intended and that brings peace and that brings joy. Okay. But the husband's have the responsibility to show their submission to Jesus by the way that they treat their wives. The wives have the responsibility to show submission to their husbands by the way that they treat and interact with him. Now, most wives, I think, could be frustrated and question this dynamic, this way that God's lined things up, because at first it could seem like it's unfair for the wives and who they have to submit to as opposed to the husbands and who they have to submit to. Because if you remember, we talked about this this morning, Jesus, he's always in submission to his father. He's in a, a, a perfect example to all of us of what submission looks like. And the husband has the opportunity to be in submission to Jesus who never messes up. But God has commanded the wife to be in submission to the husband. And we talked about this morning that the husband can mess that up in two different ways. So it could seem at first like it's unfair for the wife. They've been given the responsibility to submit to a husband, but unlike the husband who gets to submit to the perfect son of God, the wife has the responsibility to submit to a husband who messes up, who may mess up often, and who may mistreat his wife in the ways that we talked about this morning. It could be that as that husband interacts with his wife and her weaknesses, that he mistreats her. And he's angry at her and frustrated with her. And that he, he, instead of treating her like the beautiful, fragile vessel that she is, he treats her like a brick or like a football and demands toughness of her that God didn't place into her. Or that husband may respond by being passive and not providing the leadership that he's supposed to provide and, and instead allows that wife's weaknesses to dictate the home. So it would be natural for, for any wife in here to say, well, hang on a second. How, how am I supposed to submit to someone who's always going back and forth and back and forth, who lives over on this side and then the next day lives over on this side and on this issue is over here and on this issue is over here? What is submission supposed to, to look like for me? Well, I'm glad to encourage you that according to verse one, God understands and inspired through Peter directions for the wife, understanding that they would follow someone who was flawed, someone who would make mistakes. Because right there at the outset, this should comfort you wives, 
that right at the very outset, it says, likewise, ye wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if, if, as though that, you know, there's some who don't, but it says that if any obey not the word. So it's saying if a wife has a husband who does not obey the word, here's your plan for what to do. Here's your plan for how to respond if you have a husband who's not lined up under Jesus like what he's supposed to be. Now, when it says here that if any obey not the word, the husband might not obey the word, that could be referring to salvation, that there could be a marriage relationship in which a wife has the responsibility to submit to a husband that's not even saved. He's not in submission to the word when it comes to his need to repent and trust Christ for salvation. But Peter's been really clear in lots of other places in this epistle to say salvation and to talk about belief in Christ expressly. So I would suggest to you that when he says that if any obey not the word, he may be talking about salvation, but he's talking about things much broader than that. And the kinds of things that we're talking about where you may have a husband who is in willful rebellion against what he knows that Jesus wants him to be. He's in willful rebellion to being the husband that Jesus wants him to be. Well, just like the husband can respond to his head Christ in one of three ways, and only one of those is the right way, a wife who's having herself to submit to a husband who's not who he's supposed to be can also respond in one of three ways. And in the same way as the husband, two ways are the wrong way and one way is the right way. The first way that a wife might be tempted to respond is when she sees that her husband is not lined up under Jesus the way that he's supposed to be, whether he mistreats her and is unkind to her, or he's a passive husband who, who refuses to help her, with his, help her with her weaknesses. The first way in which that a wife might respond is by every time that that husband gets out from line, out under being under Jesus, that she finds it her place to remind him that he's not the husband that he's supposed to be. And if we're just going to put it out there, then we would call that the nagging wife. It's that every time the husband is not the husband that he's supposed to be in one direction or another, she finds her place as being one to remind the husband that this is not what he's supposed to be. And the nagging wife within her own heart is intending to make things better. She's saying, I know that my husband shouldn't be treating me this way. I can tell that this is not the way that he's supposed to to care for me, to love me, to deal with my weaknesses, my sincere struggles and problems. So it's my responsibility to make him as miserable as I possibly can any time that he's not the husband that he's supposed to be. Now, she may say, now, I, I don't know if I can really call it nagging. It's more just that I have to talk to him every time that he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Then I'm just providing those gentle reminders to let him know that this is not what Jesus expects of him. But when she takes herself and she places herself above her husband as an authority to try to straighten him out, saying, I got to help him become the husband that he's supposed to be so I can get the treatment that I want or that I expect, then several things go wrong. Just like if the husband doesn't treat his wife in the way that he's supposed to, lots of things go wrong. If a wife says, I'm not being treated the way that I should be treated, I know it. So I'm going to count it my responsibility to fix my husband. Then because that's not what God designed the woman to do or to be, it really only makes the problem worse. And I I want you to think about just how many ways in which it does make the problem worse. Okay? If a husband is not under Christ the way that he should be, that husband not being under Christ and the protection of being in the will of God, if he's out from under the authority of Jesus, then you can count on the fact that God's going to send judgment and chastisement upon that husband in order to make him want to do what's right. But if, if the wife says, well, I can do Jesus's job for him and let me fix my husband, then what has she done? But she's placed herself right in that position of judgment above her husband and in between her husband and God. It's like she gets in God's way. God might be through the Holy Spirit trying to talk to that husband and say, you're not providing the leadership that you should be, or or you're you're not being sweet and kind and understanding like what you need to be. But that wife can get in the way of what the Holy Spirit is trying to do and crowd out the voice of the Holy Spirit 
and sound very different than what the Holy Spirit would sound like to that husband. And in doing that, places herself in a position of chastisement from God and may in some senses actually get in the way of what God's trying to do and shelter her husband from what God is trying to do in his life. But I also want you to think about this. None of us like to be corrected. None of us like to be chastened. None of us like to be told that we're doing the wrong thing. And the wife that chooses to put herself in that place then is going to connect herself with all the things that her husband is doing wrong. And the, and the voice of correction that is supposed to be coming from God is instead going to be coming from that wife. And that husband can come to the place that he resents his wife. He's already not what he's supposed to be, but she can make things worse. And here's what can happen. As she nags her husband to try to help him do what's right, instead he spends his time trying to get away from her. Think about how that it's possible that what motivates many a man cave and many a home is a husband trying to find refuge and create a safe space to get away from a wife that's chasing him down. And what at first starts out as a man cave can instead become a man house as he's been chased down so much and is so miserable being corrected by his wife that he'll run as far away as he has to until he can get away from from that chasing and that correction from his wife. And a wife who's simply trying to make her husband a better husband may actually push him away and drive him away rather than what she's actually hoping for, which is to see him treat her the way that God intended for her to be treated. So the nagging wife, as much as she may in her own spirit be trying to fix the problem in every way, only makes it worse. She makes it worse for herself. She makes it worse for her husband. And as God tries to judge that husband for not being who he's supposed to be, becoming the voice of that judgment causes that husband to want to run as far away from his wife as what he possibly can. And that's what can cause a marriage to fracture and to accelerate in that way is that a husband who is nagged may be motivated to be even harder and even harder and even harder or who's being nagged to say, I got to get away from this. I need to stay away from her and to go further and further away. So just like the husband who doesn't treat his wife in the way that God intended only makes things worse then the wife who chooses to nag or try to correct her husband, even with the best, best of intentions, only makes things worse. The second way in which that a wife can respond to her husband not being the husband that he's supposed to be is for her to, to see his immaturity and how he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and to be so weary of that that she says, I'm going to let my husband be as immature as he wants to be. He can be as unstable as he wants to be. He can, he can be as much of a mess as he wants to be, but I'm going to have my act together. He may make all kinds of mistakes with his money, but I'm going to have my own money and I'm not going to make mistakes with my money. Or he may make all kinds of mistakes with his time, but I'm not going to make mistakes with my time. He, he may not be the husband that he's supposed to be, but I'm going to do everything right. And what that would look like is you have God the Father and Christ, and you have a husband who's going back and forth. It's a wife who would say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be stable, and I'm going to stand right here under Christ, God the Father, Christ, and I'm going to be right here while my husband is all immature. I'm going to have my act together and just let him do his thing, okay? And that sounds good in theory, but the spirit that would cause a woman to want to do that actually makes it where that though she thinks she's lined up under Christ, she's just ever so slightly out from under his control. Because according to the verses that we're going to dig into in just a second, that prideful spirit, that aloof spirit, that pious spirit is not what, what's reflected in verses one through six. So that wife may say, I'm going to stand right here and let him be the idiot if he wants to, but I'm going to have my act together. But that pride causes her to be just out from under what Jesus really wants her to be. So then think about how that that also makes the problem worse. Now, of course, God has unrestricted access in order to be able to chasten that husband. But because the wife is aloof and pious and every time she sees her husband being chastened, 
then she's going to be distant and she's going to be aloof and she's going to be prideful and say things like, I told you so, or you got what you deserved. And as that husband is going through that chastening from God for not being the husband that he should be, and he is being unstable and he is doing wrong, as God chastens that husband, then there's a separation and and a distance in the relationship. And there's nothing in that husband then that wants to be close to his wife. Because while she may not have been a nag, she may be a know-it-all, and she may be super spiritual, and she may be a Pharisee, and have, uh, have the outside altogether while the spirit is one that's separated from her husband. So think about it then. As God chastens that husband for not being who he's supposed to be because he's not lined up under Christ, then at the very same time, God is chastening that wife as well because her spirit is not what it's supposed to be. So think about it in that setup and in that arrangement, everybody's getting chastened and judged by God because nobody's being what they're supposed to be. You have a husband who on the outside is all over the place and God's having to judge him. And you have a wife who has a a, a pious and a prideful and a distant spirit. And God's having to judge that wife as well. And she's separated and away from her husband. And as that husband is being judged by God, then there's no closeness. There's no kindness. There's no love. There's no sweetness that would make that husband want to get his act together. Instead, he would say, this marriage thing just doesn't work. And she's certainly not worth it in the way that she treats me. And that husband may, again, in trying to get away from the chastening of God, just run further and further away because there's no closeness with his wife. And again, that wife's intents, her intention may be good. She may be saying, well, he's not obeying the word. Somebody in this house has to obey the word. Somebody in this house has to do what's right. But that spirit of saying he may mess everything up, but I'm not going to mess everything up, places her outside of the spirit that God intends for her to have and makes it where that both that husband and that wife are in a place of, of having God's chastening upon their lives and upon that marriage. So then what would be the right response? According to verse two, it says that the husband has the opportunity to behold your speaking to the wife. Behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. And the wife can be a nagging wife. She can be an aloof and pious wife. Or she can be a self-restrained, a chaste, a meek, and a quiet wife. And whereas the nagging wife counts it as her responsibility to fix her husband, and the aloof wife counts it as her responsibility to be the only adult in the room, The self-restrained, chaste wife finds it her responsibility to stay close to her husband and to submit to him no matter what it is that he does. She's going to be with him when he does right, when he does wrong. She makes it her responsibility to chasten her own heart and say she may want to respond like this, she may want to respond like this, but instead she's going to make the decision to be with him And underneath his care, underneath his leadership, no matter what. Now, we got to talk about this a little bit more because I'm sure you're thinking and and there should be some questions going through your mind when you when you think about a husband that is doing all these things and a wife that's supposed to be in subjection to that or to be in submission to that. One of the questions that might be coming to your mind would be, well, hang on a second. If she's in submission to him and he's here and he's here and he's here, doesn't that mean that she's also not in submission to Christ? If she's following him and he's not lined up where he's supposed to be, doesn't that mean that she's not where she's supposed to be? But as Peter makes it clear, it's all about the inside. It's all about the heart. And a wife who chooses to be in submission to her husband, even when he mistreats her, has that spirit and that disposition that though she may follow him, in his life decisions physically as he messes up over and over and over again in the sight of God, she's exactly where she's supposed to be in attitude and in spirit. And a wife who's right like this is allowing God to have full unrestrained, complete access to her husband. And God gets to be the voice of judgment and God gets to be the voice of chastisement while the wife is right there with him, loving him, caring for him, no matter what it is that he's going through as a result of his poor decisions. 
Now, this, this spirit that we're talking about here, it's so misunderstood by the world, and this text is so misunderstood by the world, that to define it further and to make it clearer like what this text does, it's that we need to, it's almost like we need to spend as much time saying what Peter is not saying as what we would say, saying what Peter is saying, that this wife is supposed to be. Because if you look at, at verse 3, for example, it says this wife that's in, in submission to her husband, it says, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold and, or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. And it could be that there would, there would be people that who, who look at this text and misinterpret Peter's intent and think that what Peter is saying or that what the Bible is teaching is that it's somehow godly for a woman to be dowdy or frumpy or to not care what she looks like or to say that that's not important at all what the outside looks like. But that's not what Peter is saying here at all. In fact, what he says in the verse right there at the beginning of verse three, if you look at it again, there's a key word here that's used several times. He says, who's adorning, let it not be. Who's adorning. This is a really beautiful word here. And the, the idea behind this word adorning is, is it's what a person puts on themselves in order to find themselves beautiful. So it, it's a recognition that all of us need a little work to be beautiful, right? I mean, there's probably not any of us this morning that rolled out of bed in the state that we were and walked down here. I mean, every once in a while, maybe there's going to be somebody that does that. Most all of us acknowledge between when I get out of bed and when I'm seen in public, there's some adorning that needs to take place. There's some beautifying that has to happen. Okay. But, and it's in every woman to want to be beautiful. God put it in a woman to want to be beautiful and to view herself as beautiful and for her husband to view her as beautiful. And what Peter is saying here is not, listen, he's not saying that a a wife should not give attention to those things. Because if you even look at other places in scripture, a woman who beautifies herself is actually lifted up as being a good thing. Our pastor, Brother Gaddis, he just completed a four and a half year preaching series through Proverbs. And a week ago, Wednesday night, he preached from Proverbs 31 and reminded all of us that in Proverbs 31, a woman who is exalted and lifted up as an example, it says very clearly that she clothed herself in silk and purple and fine clothing. So it's not as though that Peter here in this text is saying that it's wicked or wrong for a woman to fix up her hair or to wear makeup or to adorn herself beautifully. He's not saying that at all. It's that she has to understand and have in her mind All this stuff that I put on the outside is not what makes me beautiful. It's not what makes me truly beautiful. It's the time spent making what's on the inside beautiful that makes me beautiful. Both to God and to my husband. That what makes me beautiful is the time spent on a daily basis understanding that as I get up in the morning and as I roll out of bed, that just as I wouldn't dream about going out in public without doing some adorning on the outside, Peter's saying that a wife needs to understand that she won't be beautiful on the inside unless she gives attention to helping her spirit on the inside be what it's supposed to be. So Peter's not saying here that a wife has to be frumpy in order to be godly. What he's saying is that a wife that wants to be beautiful before her husband and wants her husband to find her beautiful should give her attention to the inside and realize that in the end, that's really what's going to make her beautiful. So it's not attention. It's not that that lack of attention to the outside is godly. It's that attention to the inside is what makes a woman godly. But also, another thing that it's not, if you look at verse 4, it says, But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible. So he's saying, this, this doesn't fade away. It doesn't get wrinkles. It, it, it doesn't get flabby. Okay, the, the heart doesn't make all of those changes as it gets older and as the body gets older. But look at what he says. Even the ornament. So he's talking about like earrings or a necklace. Something that beautifies a woman an ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price, more beautiful than rubies or diamonds or anything like that is a wife who wears a beautiful spirit on the inside. But 
Again, when it says a meek and quiet spirit, some might misunderstand this passage and this section here as well, where a person might think that when Peter is saying this, that a meek and quiet spirit is the same thing as a meek and quiet mouth. Okay, because notice he didn't say that what is so awesome or what is an ornament to a woman is a meek and quiet mouth, that she has to be silent or have no opinion or have nothing to say or that she can't ever provide leadership because every husband in here would hope that his wife and the home life and home time provides leadership to the children. Again, Proverbs 31 makes it clear that that exalted woman who's, who's to be appreciated, she finds herself in the marketplace and is selling her wares. It's not like that she's standing back somewhere meekly, you know, quietly hoping that somebody's potentially going to buy something that she's made. It, again, that woman is going to be out there and be communicating. So it's not talking about a meek and quiet mouth as though that a, a woman who has some volume to her or has some life to her or has some things that she wants to say is automatically an ungodly woman. What he's saying is that on the inside, even if she has fun on the outside, even if her responsibilities cause her to communicate a lot, it's that on the inside, there's a peaceful and a quiet spirit. That there's calm and that there's rest in her spirit. And that's that ornament that makes her beautiful. It's that on the inside, there's peace and there's rest. So that even again, even if she spends lots of time expressing herself, providing knowledge and understanding to the people around her, she's still going to have that spirit of quietness and submission before God. Let's talk about one more thing, though, that it's not. And this comes in verse 5. In verse 6, look at it again. For after this manner, this same meek and quiet spirit, inward adorning that he's been talking about. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Here's the thought, okay? Again, misunderstanding from verse 6 is that what wives are required to be is a doormat who blindly follow their husbands wherever they go, allow themselves to be trampled on, allow themselves to be mistreated, and their responsibility is just to take it. And that they're just supposed to go through whatever happens in life, blindly trusting their husband and calling that husband Lord because it's as though that he is the Lord like he's God or something like that, that there's this doormat relationship with the husband. But that's not what Peter is talking about at all. It doesn't fit the example of Sarah, and it's not what is communicated in verse 5. Because there's a key phrase that you find in verse 5. Look at what it says. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, look at the next four words, who trusted in God. So it's not as though, listen, that... Peter is saying, okay, wives, your responsibility is to submit to your husband and to trust him. No matter what boneheaded decision that he makes, no matter how he treats you, you have to trust him. Well, I don't think he's suggesting that a wife has to trust her husband at all if he's doing wrong and he's proven himself untrustworthy. It's not that she's supposed to blindly follow him and say, oh, yeah, he's going to make right decisions all the time. And every decision that he makes, it's always going to be the right decision. I mean, that'd be crazy. To, to think that that's how any husband is going to be. And for sure, if you look at our example with Sarah and think about in the Old Testament how Sarah followed Abraham. Think about how many mistakes <laughs> that Abraham made along the way that even impacted Sarah. I mean, God told Abraham to leave the land where they lived, the family that they knew, and God told him, you just go where I tell you to go. And Sarah followed Abraham. And when Abraham goes to the land that God had promised to them, there's a famine. And Abraham gets nervous. And he makes a bad decision. And he goes down to Egypt. What did Sarah do? She followed her husband. When they get to Egypt, Abraham realizes how beautiful his wife is and says, now, I know that we're like half siblings and all that, so let's focus on that side of our relationship. And anybody that asks you, you just tell them that, that you're my sister 
so that they won't kill me. Okay, so that's the plan. So he sends his beautiful wife in amongst pagan people and tells her, you just let them know that we're not married, understanding that that would make her available to attack or to someone trying to marry her, even outside of her desire or her will. He sends his wife out there and says, I know you're beautiful, but just lie to them so that they won't kill me. It's just, yeah, you, you go ahead. You stand out there. You, you be the brave one. You be the tough one. And I'll stay, stay back here. But what did Sarah do? She did what her husband asked her to do. But nowhere in scripture do you find that Sarah thought that all of the decisions that Abraham made were good decisions. What you find in Hebrews chapter 11 is that she was a woman who trusted God. She's in the hall of faith. And according to 1 Peter 3, 5, the example that you find in the Old Testament women is not ones who blindly followed their husbands, no matter what it was that he did. And it was their responsibility to be this doormat and let their husband just stamp all over him and mistreat him. And, and they were just supposed to trust him no matter what. It's that, listen, look up here. It's that that wife was supposed to see past her failing husband and say, this is the husband that God gave to me, and I trust God to take care of my husband. God will take care of me as God takes care of my husband. And though my husband may treat me like this, I'm going to trust God. Not trust my husband, I'm going to trust God. And though my husband may treat me like this, I don't have to trust my husband, I have to trust God. Though he may treat me like this, though he may act towards me like this, I'm going to follow my husband wherever he goes and trust God to take care of my husband. And then what's so beautiful about that arrangement is that God has that unrestricted access to that husband. That wife is right there where God wants her to be. And she has peace, not because she's always treated perfectly or because her husband always makes right decisions, but she knows that she's being what God intended her to be in her relationship to her husband. But there's one thing, even above all the peace and all the joy that she experiences through being to her husband what she's supposed to be, there's one thing that makes it even better than all of that. It's this. According to verse 1, it works when a wife does that. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, Likewise, ye wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So what Peter is saying is that a wife who chooses to submit to her husband is acting so much like Jesus. According to first Peter two, remember we talked about that this morning. She is so much in submission to her husband, even to the point of her own suffering. That, he, that husband looks at that wife and he's deeply convicted because he says, my wife is more like Jesus than what I am. My wife treats me better than what I deserve. And even without a preacher flinging it down and letting him have it, even without the word, even without a wife having to nag that husband, that by her willingness to be with her man no matter what and trust her God no matter what, that as she follows her husband through life, that husband gets chastisement from God and a Christ-like example from his wife, and it provides withering correction to that husband to want to get his act together. And I'm telling you, wives, I can tell you this, and I think, I think the husbands who are here would agree, that there is nothing that has more of an impact on us as husbands than when we mess up as husbands and you still treat us graciously. I mean, it's, it's so convicting when, when you're trusting somebody way bigger than us, you're trusting in God, and, and we see that trust in you, and you follow us in spite of the way that we treat you. It, it's, it's one thing, listen, when we mess up and you nag us, it's sort of like we're justified in treating you like a brick when you act like a brick. Or if you're pious and aloof, it's sort of like we're justified in mistreating you because we say, well, she's cold or she's pious, or she's so prideful. But even if in all of our mistakes, you're right there with us and follow us, it's so convicting because you love us even though we don't deserve to be loved. And stronger than any speech, stronger than any prideful example, 
that example of being like Jesus is so deeply convicting. I, I can't help but think about <clears throat> actually Anna's and my wedding day and our, our wedding night, actually. Uh, Anna's, we got married in Indianapolis. That's where Anna's from. Uh, her dad rented us a classic Jaguar uh, to take us from the church to the hotel in downtown Indianapolis where that we stayed that night. And <clears throat> it was just so beautiful. She stayed in her wedding dress. I was still in my tux. We show up at the hotel. They'd already worked it out to have our bags up there. We've got our room keys and we're headed up there to the hotel room for our first night together as a married couple. And it hadn't occurred to me prior to this, but we get up to the room. I don't remember what floor it was on. And uh, it occurred to me, here's my first opportunity to carry my bride across the threshold. It's the threshold of our first place that we're going to stay. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but my wife, she has about an inch on me. I, I, I used to actually be really self-conscious about that. I used to like stuff an extra sock in the heel of my shoe when we first started liking each other or some other thing to just, just try to do something about that inch. And eventually I realized if I'm going to marry this woman, I, I can't live my life this way. I just got to be okay with being shorter than her. Okay. So it, I, I was actually, because it was the first time I was ever going to have picked her up, I was a little bit nervous about how it was going to go. Not because, not, not, not because, but, be, but because, okay? Yeah. So I'm thinking, I don't know exactly how this is going to go. So here she is, she's in her wedding dress and got all this extra fluff at the bottom. So it's even like I didn't have really good access. I'm having to kind of do this number and try to get around underneath all of it. And I, I get her and I'm holding her and, and it was fine. It was it worked out better even than what I thought it was going to be until I'm trying to kind of keep the door pushed because, you know, hotel doors are going to come closed again. I'm trying to kind of push that door open. And finally, I push that door open where it slides open enough. And my thought is I'm going to go through quickly so I can get my wife through. Now, when I walk through a doorway, then there's going to be plenty of room. But holding my wife stretched across my arms, her head's about here and her knees are about there. God is my witness. I clocked my wife's head against this side of the door frame, trying to go into the hotel room the night we got married. And here it is. I'm carrying her across the threshold, my first husbandly opportunity to take care of her and literally sweep her off her feet. And I bash her head on the door frame. Who does that? Right. And I carry her in. And, and the thing that's striking me as she's being so sweet and so understanding is you are a complete dork. Here it was. <laughs> this was your chance to be romantic. And, and you hurt her. You, you hurt your wife like this. I, I just couldn't believe it. And the more gracious that she was, the, the worse that I felt. Okay? So imagine this scenario of the three responses that we're talking about. Because my gracious, wonderful wife let me bash her head against the door. And afterwards responded graciously. But imagine how different it would have been if she had responded like the nagging wife or like the aloof and pious wife, okay? If, if I'm holding her and as we approach the, the door frame there and I'm about to go through, if she turns and looks at me and says, don't you bash my head against the door? How that uh, suddenly she becomes the one who's at fault talking to me in that way and has that spirit that makes me say, well, fine, carry your own self across the threshold <laughs> because I'm no longer getting to be the husband and getting to be the one who takes care of her. If she starts chewing me out because she, she doesn't trust me and she's going to nag me, then how that, that doesn't give me an opportunity to feel bad or to want to treat her right or to get my act together. It instead makes me want to blame her for the way that she treated me. Or she had been the aloof and pious wife, where that as I'm approaching the doorframe, she's not going to nag me about it. But when she sees the doorframe approaching her head, if she instead says, oh, I'm going to get my own self through the doorframe. And she just kind of jumps out of my arms and walks herself through saying, you're going to bash my head against the door. So I had to get my own self through the doorframe. Then again, how that that's going to make me feel defensive and frustrated because she didn't trust me. She didn't give me the opportunity to carry her through the threshold. But instead, when she allowed me to carry her through and she got hurt, she was submitted to the point of suffering, literally. Okay. When she allowed that to happen and yet responded graciously, everything in me was saying, you are a complete moron and you don't deserve the person that you've been given. It's about time, bucko, that you got your act together. And that example is just an everyday, simple, practical 
type of example, but think about how in all of the big decisions in life, a wife has the opportunity to respond in those same three ways. Here's, here's another practical example. You can have a husband and a wife. Maybe I know about this from experience. They're driving down the road. <laughs> That's its own challenges, right? Driving down the road together. And a husband thinks he knows where he's going, but a wife knows where she's going, right? And so... The husband is about to mess it up. He's about to go the wrong way. They're already in a hurry. They're trying to get somewhere. And the wife can respond by... It. Now, listen, it's, it's perfectly fine for her to say, now, do you remember, hon, this is the way that we go? And she can do that with that meek and quiet spirit. Again, it's not that she's meek and quiet in mouth. Did everybody remember that? So it's not like she can't say something to her husband about where they're supposed to go. It's all about the spirit on the inside. And if she's meek and quiet on the inside and tells her husband and he still rejects it, that's his fault. Right. So then she can respond by being the nagging wife and saying, you never listen to me. And we always take the dead end and you always waste our time. And she just makes the problem worse. Or she can sit there after she's told him once what's the right way to go and instead be aloof and pious and wait till he turns down the dead end road. And then (laughs) and just sort of let him know that he was wrong and she was right. But notice the nagging makes him want to get away from her. Right. And the being pious as he's trying to fix the mess he made leaves them distant as they sit separately in a vehicle close in proximity, but distant in connection. Right. Because she's made herself aloof and pious and separate from him as he has to turn around and make things right. But if instead, even after he's made those mistakes, she responds graciously, touches him on the knee and says, it's okay, babe, we'll get there. It'll be fine. Then he's going to sit there and say, man, I don't deserve this woman. I mess it up. I go down the dead end roads all the time. I should listen to her. She does help so often. She probably does know better than I do. She goes there more often and look at the way that I treated her and look at the way that I didn't listen to her. And that wife who stays close to her husband, even as he makes mistakes, allows God to work on that husband through his chastening Holy Spirit and works on that husband through the example of that wife that sticks with him no matter what. Now, listen... I've never been a wife. I think that's fairly obvious. Um, So I don't know all of what necessarily that it's like to be a wife to a husband who doesn't make right decisions. But all of us have authorities that are over us that don't do what's right. And the husbands do have an experience at working with a boss who mistreats them or a government who mistreats them. Husbands can understand what this concept is in, in some ways or in some degrees, but what does become really, really clear is that in order, just like Peter said all throughout this epistle, to be a person who can be in submission to authority, even when that authority mistreats you, persecutes you, mishandles you, it takes the grace of God to be able to respond in that way. Just like we talked about this morning, there is no husband in here who in of himself in his own strength would have the ability to lead a wife and her weaknesses in the way that he should. It's just not in us. It's not in us to do that. And there's not a wife in here who in her own strength can respond to a husband who messes up often and still treat him in the way that God wants him to be treated. It requires the grace of life. And to remind you, and then we'll finish up, Then look at, again, what we said in verse 7. It says in the first part to the husbands, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Look at this. And as being heirs together. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Heirs together of the grace of life. A husband can look at his role and how he's supposed to submit to Jesus and say, I cannot do this on my own. I need Jesus' help. And a wife can look at her role and her responsibility to follow a husband who messes up and say, I need the grace of God. And think about then how a husband and wife who understand that they are heirs together of the grace of life, how that produces a spirit of unity before God as they both say before God, I'm going to need God's help to be to you what I'm going to need to be. I'm going to need God's help to be to you what I need to be. And that humble spirit is the one that God can bless. Because remember, what does scripture say? God resists the proud. Those who say, I've got this, I I can do this, I can figure this out. God resists those people, but God gives grace to the humble. And when you've got a husband who's humble and says, I need God's help, you've got a wife who's humble and acknowledges she needs God's help, 
than they're heirs together of the grace of life and both have their enabling to be what God wants them to be. So listen, we're almost done. God the Father, Christ, husband and wife. If you have a a wife in some circumstances who is not the wife she's supposed to be, even if you have a husband who's what he's supposed to be, then that wife may respond in all of these ways. But God will bring judgment to that wife and will help her to see that this is the place that she wants to be. And when you have a husband who's out of alignment, if you have a wife who wants to do what's right, then as that husband doesn't do what he's supposed to be, then every time he doesn't, God rebukes that husband and helps him to want to do what's right. So God is at work in both the husband and in the wife to get them in line and in order because he loves them and wants them to have that beautiful, wonderful marriage as what he intended it to be. The alternative is what's at the end of verse 7, that your prayers be not hindered. God resists the proud, God gives grace to the humble, and there could be many husbands, many wives who claim that they're trying to have a relationship with God, trying to do things for God, but because they're resisting God's grace and resisting God's work in their life regarding their marriage, then their relationship with God is hindered because just like that humble spirit will unify them before God and they can pray together and say, we're going to need your help to be the couple we need to be, the couple that refuses that grace separates themselves from God's grace through their pride and their prayers then, their access to God is going to be restricted, going to be hindered, going to be separated because that prideful spirit that's there. So listen, the alternatives are so clear and we live them on a daily basis. What I would encourage all of you to do is to recognize afresh and anew what God asks of you as a spouse to be towards your spouse and to be willing, even if a conversation were needed tonight, in humility, to turn to a spouse and say, I haven't been leading you like I should be. Or a wife to turn to a husband and say, I haven't been, I haven't been trusting God like I should be. I haven't been following you like what I should be. And that humble spirit is one that God can bless. Okay, let me pray with you, and then I'll turn it over to Brother Farrell. Lord, I just, again, thank you so much for the, the clarity and help that we find in your word. And I thank you, Lord, that the way that you have in store for every wife who's here may be something that seems so countercultural to our world. But we look at the way that the world does marriage, and it, and it never works, and it produces just more conflict and more problems and more separation. But inasmuch as we're willing, with your help, in humility, with your grace, to submit to our place, even to the place of our own suffering, that then you bless in ways that give us such peace and joy. Thank you for that. And Lord, if there are conversations that need to be had amongst the couples who are here, I pray, God, that you would grant them, bless them with the the humility and the grace to talk through those things and to be open about the struggles that are there and with your help and guidance to get lined up as being the husband and as being the wife that you want them to be. And Lord, I'm sure looking forward tomorrow, uh, rather than talking about the separate husband's role and the separate wife's role, to talk about what couples can do together with, with your help and enabling to have a wonderful marriage according to your perfect design. I look forward to talking about that in the morning. Lord, again, thank you for this time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen.